Suspended above a high drop, Vale began flailing, desperately trying to free his arm from the sheets as he dangled, suspended in midair. With no one to know his whereabouts except for Morgan, who was nervously eyeing him from the rooftop, any mishap could result in his death. Vale shook and twisted as hard as he could. His life was in danger. Or perhaps, more importantly than his life, his freedom was at stake. He had his life, a life that was meaningless, consumed by the very brick walls that he and Morgan had put their sweat, their bodies, their minds through until they had tasted that crisp smell of fresh air. He couldn't stop now. This would not be the thing that got in Vale's way after months of planning, months of digging, months of risk and secrecy. No. My name is Dominique, and I've been fascinated with the concept of freedom since as long as I can remember. I love hearing a good story, but more importantly, I love telling them to people. This is Breakthrough, the podcast where I dig up every detail I can to tell you a story of an epic quest for freedom, how it happened, and the ingenuity, the audacity, and the resilience some will go to to gain their freedom, even when they are the worst among us. Except that it was. Morgan stood frozen on the rooftop as he watched his cellmate plummet to the ground. The thud his body made on the hard cement must have made Morgan's blood curdle. In the commissioner's report of the escape, it said that Vale fell only about 12 feet, the same distance I was when I stood on top of that baseball dugout at 17, terrified to jump down into the arms of my friends. I have a hard time believing that they were actually able to ascertain the height at which he fell, not because of the severity of his injuries, but because no one was there except for Vale and Morgan. And in the height of an adrenaline rush, there's just no way to be certain. Morgan tried to call down to Vale, but Vale just laid there. Morgan couldn't yell for fear of being heard, so all he could do was whisper down to Vale. And to make matters worse, the spot they chose to climb down was covered by shadow. But when Vale fell, he landed in such a way that exposed the top half of his body. Any moment, a guard on a nightly patrol could round a corner or a patrol car could beam its headlights and see the top half of Vale's unconscious body. What do I do, thought Morgan. For all Morgan knew, Vale was dead. At this point, they had only about five hours left until the morning had count. Morgan had to make a choice. He could either go back and guarantee that his life would be saved, 
but he would serve years in solitary confinement. Or he could risk death and hope against hope that he could actually make it down the wall. He decided to hope and began the deadly descent down the prison wall of Elmira Correctional Facility. Morgan hung onto the rope tightly and went slowly, cautious not to make the same mistake Vale did. As he inched closer and closer, I'd like to think that he was doing his best to block out the fact that he was a convicted murderer escaping prison, about to be caught at any moment, and that he was over three stories high with no support and nothing to hang on to, but a rope made of bed sheets. Perhaps it was the fact that he was so afraid of falling that Morgan actually made it down safely. Whatever the cause, he landed on his feet and went to check on Vale, dragging his body into the shadows. Miraculously, Vale was still alive. But this was not part of the plan. The two were supposed to get down the wall and make a run for it. But running was now out of the question for Vale, who suffered a broken ankle, a broken shoulder, and several broken ribs. An hour went by, and the two remained pressed up against the prison wall. Vale, who had regained consciousness, was trying to recover from his wounds to the point where he could move. You might be wondering why Morgan didn't just make a run for it and leave Vale to his own fate. I wondered the same thing. It's interesting to me that Morgan stayed by his side. And I wonder whether this was an act of camaraderie or if Morgan just didn't know what to do without Vale. I've been mentioning this entire time that there was a lot less information about Timothy Morgan, and it wasn't really until I got to this point in our story that the reason became solidified for me. I think it's because Morgan was the follower, and Vale was the mastermind. All of the ideas, the planning, the direction, all of that was Vale's doing. And as for the execution of their plan, that was just something Morgan helped with. I think that to Vale, Morgan's value in this only came from two places. Morgan was someone Vale could trust, and Morgan would do what Vale told him to do. And all of the documentaries, the news articles, the research, it all talks about Vale. There's hardly anything mentioning Morgan in great detail. In fact, he's mostly just mentioned in passing. Morgan just did what he was told, and maybe he just didn't know the next move on his own. A more interesting question, I think, is if the roles were reversed and Morgan had been injured. Would Vale have stayed? What would you do? I'd like to think that I would stay by the side of someone who is hurt, but when you put me in a situation like these two were in, and getting caught meant solitary confinement for years, I don't know. Do you? Something tells me that Vale probably would have left Morgan. Because Vale didn't need Morgan. For Vale, Morgan was just a stand-in, someone who could have been anyone else. But Morgan needed Vale. 
Whatever the reason for Morgan refusing to leave Vale's side, they needed to move. Their plan was beginning to unravel, but they still thought that they had a chance. For Vale, a broken ankle, shoulder, and ribs meant that they would have to go much, much slower. Would that be enough for you to call it quits? It wasn't enough for Vale. Not when his own freedom was hanging in the balance. But how were they going to get away now that their mobility was inhibited? Trying with all his might to get Vale up proved meaningless for Morgan. His injuries were just too severe. The two stayed plastered against the prison walls in the dead of night, trying to figure out their next move. This had not gone according to plan at all. With a broken ankle, a broken shoulder, and broken ribs, Vale, the mastermind behind the whole endeavor, was now a liability. They were only a few more hours before the first master had count, and Vale and Morgan were still on the grounds of the prison. Morgan stayed by Vale's side, trying to get him up, trying to move him. But when you're in excruciating pain, there's no easy way to go about getting up and getting moving. Suddenly, a patrol car shined its lights in their direction. Inside the car was Dana Idalia, the deputy superintendent for security, who just so happened to be making an unscheduled inspection at the prison. At 2.30 in the morning, my own heart is pounding just recounting this moment and what it must have been like for Vale and Morgan to be on the outside of the prison walls in the middle of the night with a sheet rope hanging down the side of the building pointing directly down at them. But then again, how many times have you driven at night and had your headlights on and parked your car? You're not really looking at the outside surroundings of your parked vehicle. In fact, last time I parked my car at night, I was driving into a parking lot going out to dinner and I can honestly tell you that I was more focused on getting inside where I intended to be than I was about my surroundings. And honestly, the last thing I would suspect in that moment was that I would be the one to catch a prisoner in the midst of their escape. Everyone thinks that they'd like to be that person who catches the bad guy. The one who witnesses the crime and can stand up in a court of law and say for the record, he's sitting right there and he's wearing a prison jumpsuit when the prosecutor asks you if you can identify the perpetrator. We all want to be that person, that person who can put away the bad guy. But in reality, in the middle of the night, when you're pulling up to a prison and you're hoping to do an unscheduled inspection to find something wrong inside the prison, 
you're not exactly focused on looking on the outside. You're focused on parking your car and getting inside so you can get your job done. I can't even tell you how many times I've driven to work and walked in without taking in my surroundings. It was 2.30 in the morning and Vail was beginning to come around. He felt he had just enough strength to let Morgan hoist him up and hobble their way. But where would they go? I wondered that too, and this is where Gary Silvers would come in one last time. During their time together, Gary Silvers would often talk about his time in the Adirondack Mountains. The Adirondacks are a massive expanse of mountains, about 160 miles in diameter that stretch across northeastern New York. At one point, Vale convinced Gary to show him a map of the Adirondacks to illustrate where Gary and his family went camping. A map that authorities would later find hidden in the carpentry shop. This apparently was their goal, but making the journey on foot to the Adirondack Mountains was a feat that would take at least 10 to 15 days walking. If you're able-bodied, that's assuming you can walk 20 to 30 miles a day. That's over 300 miles northeast of Elmira. And Vale had a broken ankle. Correctional Officer James Davenport, the CO in charge of cell block F, was responsible for the 6.30 a.m. headcount on July 7, 2003. He went about his shift as normal. And when he got to Vale and Morgan's cell, he found it strange that neither of them were out of their beds. He called for them, insisting they get out of bed for the count. When CO Davenport was met with no response, he banged on their cell bars, demanding that they rise for the head count. In prison, you do not skip a head count. If you fail to get out of your bed for the head count, that alone could be a serious infraction. So it was particularly concerning that two model inmates, who'd never had an issue in the past, were both refusing to get out of bed. Finally, when C.O. Davenport reached his hand through the cell and yanked a blanket from one of their bunks, he found himself in utter disbelief to find an inmate's bag stuffed with clothing and a painted paper mache mask instead of an inmate lying on that tiny foam mattress in cell F27. Davenport sounded the alarm, first phoning the watch commander to report the absence of two inmates in F block. The emergency procedures entailed a call to Albany, 
the state capitol, where the Communications Control Center and the Department of Corrections Central Office was located. And from there, a manhunt ensued. By this point, Vale and Morgan had made it past the town of Elmira and into the surrounding woods near Highway 17. It was just over one mile from the prison. And by then, the two had traveled less than half the distance they'd hoped for. Vale and Morgan were struggling to move on. The pain for Vale must have been excruciating. With a broken ankle, shoulder, and ribs, it's incredible that he was able to remain conscious. But when freedom is at stake and there's no turning back, I wonder if I might just be able to muster the strength to keep going myself. Finally, they reached Route 17, the highway at the far western part of Elmira, on the complete opposite side of town. Beyond Highway 17, which connects at some point to Interstate 86, is a vast expanse of farmland and industrial complex, with plenty of forest and places to hide. This, I take it, was what they thought their best shot may be at laying low, given Vale's injuries. All they had to do was cross Highway 17, just a simple length of pavement, and then duck behind the trees before they could get to better cover. They just needed to cross this one road. Morgan, the able-bodied one, looked out at the highway and tried to ascertain whether a vehicle was approaching. The sun was about to come up and soon they would no longer have the cover of night. They needed to get across this highway in order to make it to cover so that Vale could rest. Carefully, Morgan got Vale over the guardrail and helped him hobble over the pavement to the other side. But suddenly, around the bend up ahead, they saw headlights, and they were still in the middle of the highway, with no way to run. Morgan urged Vale to keep on going, but it was too late. It was a truck, driven by a civilian, perhaps on his way to work. Nevertheless, the two were seen. This was the first time since their escape that they'd been seen, and neither one was dumb enough to think that a person in a car who saw two guys hobbling across the highway, wearing the exact same clothes with no obvious reason to be there, wouldn't put two and two together when the morning news aired and alerted the public 
that two inmates had escaped from Elmira Correctional Facility. They were, for lack of a better term, totally screwed. Once over the highway, the two continued on through fields, forests, and hills until they came across refuge in the form of an unoccupied camping trailer. At this point, Vale was starting to succumb to his wounds. A broken bone needs to be reset by a doctor. Otherwise, it won't heal properly. Or even at all. Vale's ribs were broken too, which meant that every single breath was like a knife driving its way into his chest. And every moment Vale arrested was another moment spent within a couple of miles of the place that they had just escaped, where everyone was looking for them. By 9 p.m., after a full day of evasion, Vale and Morgan had next to nothing to show for their efforts but a couple of miles. The two hadn't slept since the night of July 5th into the 6th, so not only were they sleep-deprived, their bodies and minds were under an immense level of stress. They knew that they needed food, water, and medical supplies to tend to Vale's injuries, and they needed it fast. Not 100 yards from where they sat holed up in the trailer was a residence, 295 Lotta Brook Road in Horseheads, New York. Thankfully, the house was empty. I would guess that Morgan was the one who broke in and stole food and camping supplies given Vale's condition. The two stayed in that same camping trailer for the night of July 7th into July 8th. I wonder what that night was like, their first night of sleep outside of the prison. For Morgan? It had only been about five years since his incarceration, but for Vale, it was nearing 15. This was the first time in years. Was Morgan able to sleep? I'm not sure. I don't doubt that the two were incredibly anxious, but I wonder if the adrenaline had worn off and they were tired enough to actually go to sleep. In the early morning of July 8th, the two were woken by the sound of helicopter blades piercing the air. They knew that they couldn't hide in the trailer for much longer 
and so they weighed their options. The location they were in was pretty much in the countryside. In fact, Ladabrook Road was surrounded by fields. It's the type of place where you can't even really see your neighbor's house, which is probably about a half a mile away from you. In every direction stretched acres of farmland, trees, and hardly any houses. This would have been a pretty ideal place for the two to get lost, to hide out until things died down a little bit. But there was no way that Vale was going to make any progress with a bum leg, a broken shoulder, and a couple of broken ribs. And so they relented. They had to go back into town. Vale could hardly walk at this point, and his injuries were feeling worse the longer they went untended to. So they agreed to head west, back into Elmira, back towards the prison that they had so desperately wanted to be as far away from as possible. What they needed was a ride. The two trekked along a stream bed before making their way past Route 17, going under an overpass, which led them to the back of a PNC supermarket. The two hid and waited. Eventually, their patience paid off. Because remember, Elmira is a small city. It's a place where nothing bad ever really happens. I grew up in a small town in southeastern Wisconsin, a town much smaller than Elmira. At the time, the population was only about 8,000, and it wasn't unusual to leave your doors unlocked at night or leave your car door unlocked in the driveway, or even to leave your car idling as you ran into the post office or the grocery store. I've seen it happen. When I was growing up, my grandparents did that all the time. So even though it sounds crazy, to me, it's not out of the question that an unknowing man left his van idling outside the supermarket as he went inside. He was probably only intending on picking up one or two things, but, but also probably felt like he could just leave the car running with no issue. He'd probably done it before. And so, Morgan had an opportunity. But remember, He's not the mastermind of this story. If the roles had been reversed and Vale had been the one to sneak into the driver's seat and drive away, my guess is that he probably would have waited for the man to actually enter the store before doing so. Because when Morgan put the car into gear, the man recognized the sound of his own van being driven away and immediately called the police. 
Morgan swung around the back to pick up Vale, and the two headed north on Lake Road, towards the town of Horseheads, New York. I wonder what it's like to drive a car for the first time in years. I know it would probably come back to you immediately, like riding a bike, but it must have felt eerily foreign to Morgan, who had been incarcerated for five years at this point. The two would only relish in this victory for a few minutes because they didn't even get two miles down the road before police were in pursuit. The two managed to make it an additional two and a half miles before the police were able to catch them. As I got to this point in my research, I started wondering what it was like to be in that car with sirens blaring in all directions, knowing that you were being hunted like an animal. These were the last moments of their freedom, and they knew that these could also be the last moments of their lives. At the intersection of Route 14 and Gardner Road, the two were apprehended. This was it. This would be the last time that Vale and Morgan would be on the outside and the last time that they would see one another. It was over. It was 7.10 p.m. on July 8th, 2003. The two had been on the outside less than 48 hours. They surrendered. If only Vale hadn't fallen, then maybe they could have gotten farther. Maybe. But assuming they had, what kind of a life is that? Always looking over your shoulder, never seeing your family again, or anyone you ever knew. Family is the first place police go looking when a convict escapes from prison. Even attempting to get help from a family member can get them in a lot of trouble for aiding and abetting you. I don't know if Vale and Morgan ever thought about what they would do on the outside once they had gotten far enough away from the prison. What I do know, as I've said before, was that their original plan was to head for the Adirondack Mountains to hide out, live off the land for a while. An idea they got from Gary Silvers, who had once shown Vale a map of the Adirondacks after Vale had asked to see one. This map would be recovered after the escape, hidden in the carpentry shop. Something I haven't brought up yet is that for Vale and Morgan, Seeking their autonomy came at a massive price, whether they realized it or not, or whether they even cared. In exchange for their own self-governance, they would be sacrificing an existence in society, an identification, relationships, and more 
they would be on the run for the rest of their lives, forever wondering if today would be the day when they were recognized and sent back to prison. Not only that, your family, who, as I said, you would never see again, would ultimately pay a price for your escape. They would be hounded by police. They would be investigated through and through, and they would have their phones tapped and possibly their mail confiscated for years. Sometimes escaped convicts or fugitives are found decades later, at points in their lives when they've put down roots, had a family and a job. Imagine escaping and settling down, going undetected for years, only to have it all ripped away from you. They were also sacrificing vulnerability with other humans. Once you escape, you can never fully trust someone ever again for fear that they may turn you in, even and especially if it's your own spouse. When put into this perspective, I bet a lot of you are thinking that it's probably not worth it, but have you been sentenced to a lifetime behind bars? If you're listening to this, then my guess is probably not. So it's hard to reconcile the innate desire, the need to be free with the cold, hard fact that that freedom in the form of autonomy comes with a price. Could you live like that forever? I don't know if I could. Never being able to fully rest. Always having a secret. Forever deceiving those around you about who you are and where you came from. For Vale and Morgan, their quest for freedom had come to an end. They took their one chance and they had failed. You may be wondering why I told you a story about these two to illustrate the lengths some will go to to gain their freedom. Truth be told, it's not the most inventive prison escape story I've come across, nor are Vale and Morgan particularly heroic in any way, shape, or form. I could have told you an inspirational story, a story with a truly heroic individual who defied the odds and came out on top after doing things the right way. But there's something about the darker side of humans that makes some of us willing to go to lengths that an otherwise moralistic person may not do. The villain is almost always willing to go to darker, more dangerous, and unspeakable lengths than the hero is. And I think that illustrates something really interesting about us as a species. 
or rather something about the concept of freedom and what it means to us. I think it shows us that when backed into a corner, humans are capable of going to lengths that are unimaginable to those of us who have never experienced a true lack of autonomy. And sometimes it is those who dwell in the shadows that will go to the farthest lengths, like betrayal, deceit, and manipulation. I'm not advocating for these things at all, but you have to remember, it's easy for most of us to listen to a podcast and be able to remove ourselves a bit from what we're hearing. It's easy to say to yourself that you'd never do these things, but then again, we're all human and we all have an innate desire to be free, especially when that freedom means your own self-governance, your own autonomy, the ability to control your own movements. So, what would you do if you were backed into a corner? Join me next week for the conclusion of our story and the aftermath of escaping from Elmira Correctional Facility.